money and the life will never show you no pity. Oh, I work hard trying to make my bones. But times have changed and I just got to move. I can't run away, I can't run away, I can't run. Welcome to Writer's Tricks of the Trade. I'm Morgan St. James, and I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes, along with co-host Dennis N. Griffin. Producer Eric Miller is standing by to take calls, so if you want to call in, just dial 646-478-0982. Okay, Denny. Our guest for today is Tendia Moore, and he's one of those people with so many interesting things in his past, he just had to write a memoir, one that covers a short period of time in his youth when he was involved in a very clever mafia scam. Yeah, and and his book, The Boss Always Sits in the Back, sets the mood even with the title. I mean, who wouldn't be intrigued by that title? And this wasn't just another scam. This scam has never been exposed before, and it changed history and gambling laws across America forever. John, welcome to the Writer's Tricks of the Trade Show, and we think your story is so interesting, we've even extended the broadcast by 15 minutes. So please, you broke the rules, and when you told the story of a northern New Jersey organized crime group, you revealed the inside scoop on how they did business and managed to interject some humor. How did you ever get involved in something like that? Well, first of all, let me say thank you for having me on, Morgan and Dennis. It's wonderful to be on the show, and uh, I just love speaking to your entire audience, and I know a lot of friends and family who are, calling, who are listening in tonight. So uh, how, did I, uh, how did I ever get involved in something like that? Well, this, <clears throat> this obviously has everything to do with... Uh, what writing a memoir is all about. You have to experience it. And uh, how did I get involved in it? Well, like the book says, uh, I, was, uh, I, I was born and raised in uh, northern New Jersey, right outside of Manhattan. If you can't tell from my, uh, what people say, I have an accent. I don't, I don't think I have an accent. Accent, John? My <laughs> goodness. <laughs> Uh, So I I was born and raised right outside of New York uh, in Hudson County, New Jersey. And uh, a couple of people uh, in my family were connected through other people higher up the food chain in what at the time was the Lucky Luciano family and then eventually became the uh, Genovese family uh, out of New York City that had uh, a lot of... uh, a lot of control in the uh, northern New Jersey area back in the uh, late 40s and up until what I think uh, would be the early 80s. But anyway, some people in my family were affiliated with these folks, and uh, one of them happened to have been my oldest cousin, who was also my godfather. I was out in Los Angeles for my 20s, around the... Uh, time that my 22nd birthday was coming up because I was a musician back then. And my uh, godfather and I were on the phone, and he asked me if I wanted to come out to Vegas for my 22nd birthday. Personally, I didn't see anything too bizarre with that. Uh, 
He was my cousin, my godfather. I was going to be 22 years old. Uh, I was in Los Angeles, so to go to Vegas for my 22nd birthday, I didn't see anything wrong with that. Of course, within 24 hours after my arrival, I was then part of a, unknowingly, unwittingly, was part of a scam that was funneling hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars out of the Vegas casinos every couple of weeks. (laughs) And there you go. (laughs) <laughs> that that's amazing. You know, when when we met at MobCon in Las Vegas, I knew I wanted to read your book, and and I read it as soon as I got home, and it didn't disappoint me. And I said to Denny, and Denny said to me, I mean, we were both on the same wavelength. Hey, we've got to have John on the show. You know, here's a memoir that really rocks. I mean, when you read it, it almost reads like fiction. But darn it, it's true. Uh, You did such a good job of interjecting humor into that whole scenario that, you know what, I live in Las Vegas. I felt like I was right there at the crap tables with you, even though I'm not a gambler. I mean, I had to see what was going on, right? Um, And and again, to to fall back into that, uh, you know, uh, how how does one write a memoir? It's... There's a lot of us, not even people who who were affiliated with the guys, but there are a lot of people from every walk of life uh, that a lot of people have great stories to tell. I mean, certainly I I know both of you in your travels, how many people have come up to you and said, you know, I got a couple of stories. I mean, I'd like to write a book. I should do this. And believe me, in, in, the, in the two years that the boss has been out, I've met a lot of people, to be perfectly honest with you, most of them policemen uh, who all tell me, you know, I got some great stories. I got The problem with this is, and, and, and even if they are true stories and they happen to you, I certainly don't have to tell either of you, it's not just telling a story. You have to learn or you have to know how to be a writer. There's a lot more to it, to it than just putting your story down on a on a word document and and that's it. It really has to be and and like you said, Morgan, my story captured you from from the beginning and it kept that way. But it, it wasn't you know it's not simply I was some guy who grew up around these people and said someday I'm going to write a book and boom I wrote a book. For many, many years, I was a writer. I worked for a newspaper writing a column every week uh, back in my, uh, in my late 20s. Uh, in my 30s and 40s and, uh, and almost up to my 50s, <clears throat> uh, I, uh, I worked in the corporate world where I helped put together marketing material all the time. So I had to learn how to write to the masses. Uh, and then and then when I, uh, I left the corporate world and went out to Los Angeles to write the book, I wound up working in the studio system as a script doctor for writing screenplays. So I, I had an edge there that I wasn't just lucky enough to have experienced this life and have a story worth telling. I was also in a couple of fields where I took advantage or I took advantage of the ability to be able to write to advance those careers. 
So uh, that's that's important when it comes to writing a memoir. It's not just did I have did I experience something that is worth telling a story about, but can you really tell the story and in a way that the masses want to hear it? You know, that's something I always tell people if they want to write their own memoir, is learn the craft. Learn what you need to do in order to make it a story that people will be drawn into. Go to conferences. Take workshops. Join a writer's group. Have people critique your work. Like you said, John, you don't just sit down at the computer and start banging out a uh, a memoir that people will be captivated by. I know I, I wrote a, a short me- a, a memoir called, <laughs> you ready for this one, Confessions of a Cougar, and I was go. a cougar. <laughs> but I didn't write it until I had several books under my belt because, you know, by the time I got around to writing that book, I knew what I was doing. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and you brought up an excellent point, and I, and I can't emphasize this, uh, you know, I do. I do from time to time speak at uh, like uh, high schools to the seniors uh, in English and creative writing classes. I've spoken at several colleges uh, for uh, self-publishing, marketing, self, uh, promotion, and uh, one of the primary things I tell these people to do is get out to a writer's group. Even when I got out to Los Angeles, literally within two weeks of 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 getting there, I signed on to the writer's group of Studio City, and without a doubt, and they're even credited uh, in, my, uh, in the acknowledgments of my book, that uh, if it wasn't for a group like that, they, uh, they helped me turn a good story into a great story. And I went there as a novice, and uh, and it was absolutely helpful. Uh, so I, I can't I can't agree with you more, and I can't emphasize that to anybody who feels they they want to get their story out. Um, go join a writers group. There are they're all over the country. Just you know, we, we wouldn't be able to say this several years ago, but Google writers groups in your in your area. And just join them. Go there. Sit there for yeah. a month. Well, and there's another thing, too, with writers' groups, and, and this is something I touch on in my Writer's Tricks of the Trade book, is that just because you found a writers' group, if it isn't one that fits with what you can deal with, look for a different one. There yeah. are some writers' groups that really are not beneficial and others that are incredibly beneficial. I know... I wrote a couple of my books as a member of Henderson Writers Group, and the critiques were fantastic. But some groups have it where the critiquers want to tear apart your story, and uh, like I, I think you probably. Ex- I've always said still- this uh, after being a member of the writers group for several years, and and now uh, sort of they're an honorary member. Uh, uh, I've always said that I was, you know, you, you can sit up there, and when it's time to be, have your work critiqued for that night, and uh, ten or twelve people will comment, and it's usually only about twenty percent of them of the comments are worth keeping. The other people just need to hear themselves speak. And yeah, uh, that's 
and and unfortunately that's true and you know and not not everybody's going to get your vision simply from having it read up there uh every time so that's why i say 20 25% of your comments will be right on the money and uh that's it so anyway go ahead where where do you want to go uh, what else we got okay well I, go ahead Denny. yeah I, I just wanted to say I, i'd like to um right at this point, I think it's appropriate to say that I fully agree with what Morgan and John have just been talking about regarding writers' groups, and I say that from the perspective of someone who didn't do that. So I know what <laughs> happened in my case, because I didn't do the things that they were just talking about. I thought all I had to do was, uh, as John said, bang out a manuscript on the on the Word document and then kind of sit back and reap the rewards. And I I didn't join a writer's group. I didn't consult with other people. I didn't learn the craft, as Morgan says. And was I in for a rude awakening when I finally got that manuscript done? And I had to try to then play catch-up. Then I joined writer's groups. Then I started <laughs> looking for help when I realized I wasn't going anywhere. 2020 and, uh, hindsight. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And if I only had done it the other the other way, the right way to learn something first and then uh, get into my writing, I would have been much better off. I'd have avoided an awful lot of frustration and, uh, and aggravation, I'll tell you that. Well, one of the things that I learned, and again, I emphasize uh, to people, is uh, you, you need to get what you believe is your finished first draft, you know, what you really think is ready to present to somebody. It doesn't have to be a first draft, but it, it will never be a final draft. But you're fi- a finished draft of what you really stand behind, <clears throat> and you have to give it to people you don't know. Because if you give it to somebody in your family, you give it to your friends, you give it to somebody you went to school with who took a an English lit course, you know, they, they're your friends. They're going to be kind. Give it to somebody who is not so kind. Give it to somebody you don't know. Give it to somebody who has no vested interest in it so that if they really can't take it by the third chapter, they hand it back to you and go, sorry, not for me. Because You know, if, it's if interesting. You could, you, go ahead, John. It again. I was just going to say it's interesting that you say that because my first, one of my first attempts at um, working with fiction was a book that I wrote and I submitted it to a friend who was a published author. He was also a forensic psychologist. He's no longer with us. He passed away. His name is Mort Reed. And Mort read my manuscript And I thought he was going to give me accolades and say how wonderful it was. And it was not a memoir, but it was based on incidents that actually happened. It was inspired by that. And it's out now as a different book. But anyway, Mort read it and he said, Morgan, this will never, ever get published. Let me tell you what's wrong with it. And he proceeded to give me a laundry list that was like unbelievable. And... um, I went through it. At first, I was very hurt, but after I went through it, I realized he was absolutely right, and I rewrote everything. There you go. There you go. 
Yeah, and I credited Mort in the in the front of the book by saying if it wasn't for him, the book probably wouldn't have gotten published because I thought I'd written the next great novel. And believe me, so does everybody else. Oh yeah, you know they they when they finish it because it is their heart and their soul that they're putting into it. It really is. It becomes your life. You know, I mean this this when I was writing it. Uh, this book became my life. I needed to get this book done within about 12 to 18 months, uh, in just written. And then, <clears throat> and then I took off, things took off in the, in the screenwriter's world for me. So I, I put the book aside. But then once we determined it would be best to self-publish it and get it out as soon as possible, this goes back now about three years ago. Right about now, we made that decision. Uh, it consumed my life, and and uh, it's things are just calming down now. But but pretty much for almost three years, uh, the boss always sits in the back. Uh, took up at, at least two and a half of those three years. Uh, the boss took up every day of my life. Oh, and I, I can mind. believe that. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> You know, I was going to say, you were a a magician, a magician, (laughs) you were a magician and a musician. (laughs) When we turn out books, we're magicians. (laughs) But anyway, um, according to the book, you were an insider with no mob ambitions. And then here you were all of a sudden a trusted ear, and you learned about the life and death manipulations that made friends and relatives from that world disappear. So with... All of those people who were pushing up the daisies, I mean, you're lucky you weren't part of the dearly departed. Uh, what there, actually there made you jump into it from being a, mag- a musician? Well, I, I really, again, I didn't jump into it. It was, it was um, my cousin who, he, and, and, you know, I mean, understanding the, uh, the Italian culture, uh, we weren't just cousins. He was my godfather. He was connected, but growing up, he was that that older cousin that I idolized. His father and my father were brothers, and his father was the oldest brother of ten kids, and my dad was the youngest brother of ten of those ten kids. And so my dad looked up to his brother as I looked up to my cousin. And when my cousin told me... <clears throat> Okay, so it's your 22nd birthday. You have a $25,000 credit line at the what was then the biggest hotel and casino in Las Vegas, the original MGM Grand. It was 1975. Uh, The place had only been open a handful of months at that point. And uh, here's a suite. Everything is comp. Food, drinks, shows. Um... And if you lose your money, don't worry about it. And realistically, the plan was for me to lose the money. And so that was great. Oh, and then when it was all over, he handed me uh, some money for my trouble. And I was doing well as a musician at the time. And so um, a few weeks later, he said, do you want to go do it again? I had, uh, I was 22. I was, I, I I hate saying it. I was 22. I was having a lot of fun, and it was Vegas, 1975. 
uh, anything that you could imagine that they would do for a young 22-year-old guy who was dropping $5,000 every few weeks. Yes, it was true. I mean, there were times I showed up back in my hotel, uh, sorry, back in the in my room, and before I got there, there was I had company waiting for me because the casino wanted to make sure I was happy because they saw me lose $10,000 that night. And uh it was a it was a wonderful time. So so why would as a young guy, why wouldn't I want to go back there a couple of times and over over a 26 over a 26 month period uh, I went there 22 times. <laughs> but you really had no idea in the beginning what you were getting into, did you? Really I really didn't. And then of course it wasn't just Vegas, you know, because like you saw in the book, uh after after the 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 feces hit the fan, because I don't know if we can curse on your show. <laughs> you mean the substitute for that four-letter word? <laughs> yeah, uh, after it hit the fan and, and everything happened in Vegas and they and they changed the laws and it couldn't happen in Vegas anymore. And then when Atlantic City opened up, they, could, they couldn't do the same scam in Atlantic City. So uh, the book then goes into what I call the demise of the... Uh, mafia in northern new jersey uh it's just when things started falling apart and not being that kind of organization uh that we believed they were from back in the old days and uh and so it was only because of my family ties that uh when after my godfather had moved uh out of new jersey and went to palm springs uh the local boss in the area uh, found out that I was a musician and that I worked in recording studios and that I did have an ability to hear tape recordings and uh, listen to tape recordings and hear edits. And uh, and when he found that out, they I was, for lack of a better term, I was recruited and, uh, and told <laughs> to listen to something. And uh, when I told them what I had found, I wound up uh, saving this guy because the tapes were edited by law enforcement to entrap him. And uh, I saved him 40 years in prison. So I was looked upon as a as one of the good guys uh, by all concerned. And uh, so I just happened to do the right thing for the people who asked me to listen to something. And, uh, Fortunately I, I for you, <laughs> and 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 that was it. I was just like you know, and that was it. That was really how it was. Uh, unfortunately, until uh, he he met uh, a very uh, sad ending, which of course he uh, he is the boss who always sat in the back. So, uh, so but a bing. Yeah, and there's the title. You know, another thing that you touch on in your book, and being that I'm a re- well, originally from the time I was 13 from L.A., um, I remember the restaurant Patsy D'Amore's Villa Capri very well. And if the name sounds familiar, it's because you share that last name with Patsy, and he was your uncle, right? He was my dad's first cousin. Your dad's uh, first my cousin. My dad and were first cousin, yeah. And, but the thing was, I guess 
you know, we were very fortunate. Uh, they were, when Patsy and his older brother Franklin uh, came to America, they came at different times, but Patsy wound up uh, coming to America, I'm, I'm not, I think, somewhere in the, around 1929, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, he stayed with my grandparents, my dad's family, uh, in uh, in Union. Well, I guess first they uh, yes, at this point they were in Union City, New Jersey. And so Patsy came and stayed with them for a while. Uh, he had a uh, he ha- he worked in Little Italy in the pizzerias. He uh, he then had his own pizzeria in uh, in Brooklyn for a while. And the older brother Franklin was a vaudevillian, oddly enough. And he traveled all around the country. And then in some, at some point in the uh, mid to late 30s, Franklin uh, did a vaudeville trip out to uh, that small, dusty little town called Los Angeles. And, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, back then was, it was. <laughs> uh, was orange groves out in the valley that they were selling for about, oh, $45 an acre. So uh, uh, so he he came, when he came back to New Jersey or technically New York because of Fordville when when he came back he uh, he got Patsy who was uh, who was a pizza maker and they they went out there and they uh, they opened up a, the very first Italian restaurant in all of Los Angeles called the Casa di Amor. Uh, it was on the corner or near the corner of, uh, uh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, uh, Coanga and Hollywood Boulevard. And um, and so uh, not as the story goes, uh, many people didn't know, really, uh, the locals didn't know what Italian food was. Uh, of course, you had some of the actors from New York and Chicago, Philly, Boston, but uh, not a lot of them. So uh, one day, he, the Franklin had noticed that uh, people were watching Patsy in the back of the pizzeria, flipping the pies up in the back, and everybody inside the place was watching. So Franklin came to work the next day with a sledgehammer and busted a hole in the wall and put a plate glass window there. They moved the pizza oven up to the front of the restaurant, and they put Patsy up in the window, flipping his pies, and people... And, they would it would stop traffic on Coanga and Hollywood Boulevard, so people can watch this Italian guy flipping pizzas in in the in the window. And so he Patsy uh, has been deemed the uh, the godfather or the grandfather of pizza in all of California because it's the first documented pizzeria in all of California. So our family brought that, and then later on uh, as business expanded. Patsy started the uh, Villa Capri, which became uh, a big headquarters for James Dean and uh, uh, Robert uh, Robert Wagner and Natalie Wood and uh, Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, uh, Marilyn, and everybody, and <laughs> and uh, Sammy Davis, the whole gang. Uh, you could, if you Google the Villa Capri, you would find uh, hundreds of of famous pictures of the people. Who would go there? Yeah, so, I remember those days. Yeah, yeah. so of course, uh, you know, when when uh, when we went out there, by the time I I have recollection of going out there, 
And, uh, you know, who the hell, being a young teenager, who the hell wouldn't want to go and hang out there all the time? So, you know, Patsy had a couple of kids who were just a little older than I and were still very close. And uh, I would go out to California. Uh, Joey, the, the son, he would come out to New Jersey quite a bit. And we had a lot of fun. It was great. It was Los Angeles was great. So then, of course, the music business brought me to California a lot during the 70s and into the early 80s. And then, uh, and then later on, as I got into the corporate world, because I was so familiar with Los Angeles and my family was so established out there, uh, when, I would, when I took a corporate, couple of corporate positions in New York City, even though I lived in New Jersey, for some reason the entire Southern California area became my territory. So I was always out in, uh, in uh, Los Angeles. And, uh, and then that's why in 1999 uh, I moved out there and, and was out there for 14 years and loved it. Yeah, well, you know, the, the mixture of the two elements in your book is something that just about everybody likes to read about. I mean, you had on one end you had the glitzy world of the entertainment world, on the other end you were uh working this scam in Las Vegas with the mob and I mean here you were a musician who was already successful and how did you figure out which things you would put in the book because people like you um I'll put myself in that category too because I've had a lot of life experiences you wind up with something that, if you let it roll, could fill 1,500 pages. And, you know, it's not going to be war and peace. So Absolutely. how did you manage to cull it down to a really tightly well-written book? Uh, okay, that came from, uh, uh, certainly, you're absolutely right. The first draft of this book uh, <laughs> was a little longer, let's just say. Uh, but, but then from learning screenwriting, uh, the art of screenwriting is uh, every every scene has to move forward, and it has to provide information for the scene or a scene soon after it. And you have to do that. And you have to. You can't just have filler. You can't just have things that matter uh, solely to you, and you want to get it out there, but it really doesn't keep the story intact and moving forward. Everything has to work. Uh, that's how, you, I mean, don't get me wrong, not every book has that, and there are exceptions to every rule, but that's how I made it work with the boss. I really tried to make sure that everything I wrote, even if I wrote something on page 36, it had to have a payoff, certainly, and a real good one, many pages down the road. Uh, I, I, I never kept something in, in the story simply because I wanted to tell it. Uh, there are a lot of other stories. There are a lot of things that the, that guys told me uh, that certainly would would make uh, uh, an interesting little side note or sidebar, but it really didn't move the story along. And in order to keep it in the in the genre that I want to keep it. Uh, I certainly didn't want to make up uh, anything to go to, that would not be true to the story. Yeah, so you actually kind of applied a lot of the rules that we use in fiction writing, where 
let's let's kind of reiterate for people who are listening is that it needs to move the story forward. It can't go off on side tangents that take you nowhere when you're trying when the reader is trying to figure out what's going to happen next. They don't want to go off on the side road. And sometimes you have to kill your babies as they say in in our industry, which means Absolutely. that even though you might love something, it doesn't belong there and you have to cut it. And is there any other advice you would give to people who are thinking about writing a memoir? And, you know, some people feel they can write it themselves, others hire people or co-opt with people. Like Denny and I worked together on um, La Bella Mafia with Bella right. Capo. And we have another project that we're entering into even as we speak that will be the same kind of situation where the person has a great story, but they don't have the writing chops to tell it. Yeah. And um, what what kind of advice would you give to people who feel they have a good story or a compelling story? And first, first, thing, first thing I try to have everyone understand is uh, everybody's your friend, trust nobody. <laughs> Good advice. Protect yourself from day one. Write, write a you know. Let me give you, let me give you the best example. A synopsis is a, a synopsis is a few paragraphs to up to a page and a half, no more. A treatment is anywhere from three pages to twenty pages, but you can get by with ten pages, and it has to tell a real good overview of the entire story in first, second, and uh, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah, uh, in first, uh, middle, and, and final ch uh, 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 chapters uh, or scenes uh, or acts. Sorry, I meant acts. First, second, and third acts. Yeah, so, um, so you have a beginning, I'm, a middle, and an end. Yeah, I'm trying to think of too much at the same time. And, and write that and protect yourself. There are places where you can do that. Simply send it to the Writers Guild of America. Okay? For about 20 bucks, they will protect that idea for five years. Okay? There's also what's called the poor man's copyright. Put that story of yours in an envelope, take it and get it um, uh, certified mail to yourself. Write on the outside of the envelope what it is. When it gets delivered, take it, stick it in a safe, okay? And that just protects your idea in a very cheap way until you write your full story and can copyright the whole thing. Okay. Right. And now, just to be clear, you don't open that envelope. You keep the envelope open that envelope and standing in front of a judge when you're accusing somebody of stealing your idea. And, <laughs> that's uh, when it gets when, opened, huh? <laughs> that's when it gets opened, when they, when they can break the seal to show that prior to this date, or as of this date, this man wrote this, or this person wrote this idea. And anything that was copyrighted after it, this this holds water. This document holds water. Okay, anyway, let's, uh, let's move on. Um, absolutely join a writer's group. Absolutely have people you don't know give opinions of your work. Get to the most intelligent and logical and knowledgeable people you can and learn from them. Sit at their feet and learn what they have to say. And also, conversely, and I, and I say this when I talk about the writer's group, 
I've learned more from bad writers than I have from good writers because you know what you hear when it's bad. And yeah, I agree what... with you 100%, John. I've, I've done the same thing. I mean, it, those you are some of the great bad writers. Just don't do that. It's very simple. When you see what a bad writer does, don't do that. Okay, learn from the best that you possibly can. When it comes, and you really believe you want to uh, self-publish your own book, okay, then once you finish writing your book, you have to take six months off and learn how to be a marketer, a publisher, how to copyright, how to get your, you have to get your artwork done. You have to become a warehouseman. You have to become a distributor, and you have to find out how Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and Kobo and, and uh, iTunes, how they all work. How do bookstores work? How do the big bookstores who want you to deal with uh, wholesalers instead of dealing with you direct will work uh, how, to get your book printed? I am sorry, Amazon, or any print-on-demand company. I am not a fan. I have glossy pages in my books for, uh, all, for, for uh, photos, and you can't provide that. So I like to get I like I use a printer that's in, in America and they're easy to work with. But you have to learn all this. And once you learn this, then you have to take your book and process it. You have to get it made into a printed book and prior to that you already have to have orders for what, what bookstores they're going to go into and you have to promote it on Facebook and everywhere else that you can. And then, depending, if you want to do like I did, get on the radio shows, get on the TV talk shows, promote the book in your local area about the stories, about the places that the local people will know about. There's all of that. All of that has to take place uh, in a very well-timed manner. And I am not a fan of crowdfunding. Okay? No I, John, why don't you explain what um, crowdfunding is? I'm very familiar with it, and I'm not a fan of it either, but some of the listeners might not be familiar with that term. The two most popular are, uh, are Kickstarter and Indiegogo. And uh, most people go use those to literally say, Hi, everybody I know. I'm looking to raise blank amount of dollars, and I'd really appreciate it if you can give me whatever you can, and if you give me over a certain amount of money, I'll send you a copy of this and a t-shirt, and if you do this, I'll acknowledge you in the book, and blah, 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 and all of this stuff, and then you find for the next four or five months, and you have to set a goal as to how much you need to reach, and you'll find yourself over the next handful of months Every time you talk to the people that you would normally just say, hi, how you doing to, you're saying, hi, how you doing? Did you see my Kickstarter page? And you don't want to do that. You want these people to buy your book because it's a good book and they want to buy your book. So what I did, I went to three people who were able to fund what I needed to have done to print the amount of books I felt I was going to be able to uh, print, 
and uh, to get made into e-books so that they, you know, they'd be formatted into e-books so people can have them that way. And also it, it helped fund uh, a trip that I made, uh, the initial trip to New Jersey, where I, I did the initial release of the book. And, uh, and I did that. And I took on investors, only a couple, only three of them, and gave them a percentage interest on their money that was reasonable to me and to them, and uh, that's it. And and that's the best way to do it. If if you really believe you have a great story, then you certainly can find a couple of people who could fund to get a couple of thousand books printed, and and get you on your way. And and that way you're not indebted to everybody you know, and you didn't piss off anybody who didn't want to invest in your money in your book. That's my yeah, opinion on on uh, crowdfunding. And if you um, notice, and if you notice, and I and I've dealt with a lot of friends in Los Angeles who wanted to make that independent private film, you know, for thirty five thousand dollars, and they couldn't raise six thousand dollars. Most most. Uh, most and again, there are exceptions to the rules, folks. There are people who've looked to raise ten thousand dollars on uh, on on one of these things, and they were able to raise thirty thousand dollars. But the majority of them never reached the goal that they set out to. So they yeah, and then when that happens, they don't get any of the money, right? They don't get any of the money, and and what happens is the you whatever project you're working on. You've wasted your time where you really could have found a couple of legitimate investors into your project. You draw up a deal. Here's my deal. This is what I have to achieve. When I, I sell these books, you get your money back plus 10%. In my case, it was when the, uh, when, the, when the book gets picked up by a major publishing company, all of their money gets paid back. Boom. It's, it's, a, very, it's a very straight and cut forward deal. That's really some great advice, John. You know, people, uh, I think, from listening to you realize that it's not just a little whim that people can do. I mean, writing a book, and particularly if you're going to self-publish it, it's a business, and you have to approach it as a business, and you have to be willing to invest the time and the effort and the sacrifice that goes into following what you've set for yourself as a goal. Yes, and, 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 um, and you know what I found really uh, when when I you, you know obviously Morgan you you saw you've seen the quality that the book the boss always sits in the back is I made sure that I had the best quality print uh, uh, pages cover a gold artwork on the cover plus the dust jacket. Um, a lot of, when when I originally came out with the book and contacted independent bookstores, the initial the initial wall I had to overcome was they didn't like the fact that my book was self published because the majority of the ones that they've dealt with in the past were the quality of them was not as good. A self published book often, I'm not saying all the time, folks, but a self published book often is considered a vanity project. Somebody who just wanted to write a book for the sake of writing a book, 
but they're not really getting behind the quality of the product or the ability to get out there and sell it like a publishing company would get out there and sell a book. Because if you're going to self-publish and you really believe in your product, you are the publishing company. And you have to get out. You're not just the talent. You are the company that has to get out there and promote the book. So You know, that's, a, that's really great, John. It's terrific advice. We're almost at the end of the show here. We will continue to record for the archive for the next few minutes. But we're going to say good night to everybody who's been listening. And thanks so much for listening. Until the next time, God bless and stay safe. And our next show, which will be on the second Tuesday, uh, second Wednesday of February, oddly enough, is Tony Todaro, who is the CEO of Writers of Greater Los, right, the, ugh, the Greater Los Angeles Writers Society, and he is also the CEO of West Coast Conferences, and he will talk about conferences. So we are now on to recording on archives and we can go on for a little bit more and um yeah you know like i said before people think that it's so easy one of my friends who was director of design for the hilton hotels at one time uh summed it up beautifully we were both interior designers and she said you know what everybody thinks creative pursuits are so easy because we make it look that way and a person holds the finished book in their hand, they read it, they think, oh, I could do this. Yeah. And as you said, they, you know, unless it's going to be a memoir for your friends and family, I mean, if you really want to get it out there, then you have to learn the craft. You have to be aware of what you're getting into. And as John did, um, even in a serious, very serious topic, he managed to make it light and funny because people like, light and funny sometimes. I mean, there's there's a very good juxtaposition in this book between some things that are really dramatic and then you take a breather and you laugh for a while. Yeah, you have to. I mean, you know, realistically, again, in my story, you're talking about people, uh, you're talking about people who, if you looked at them the wrong way, you, you could either be brutally beaten up or killed. And uh, on, on the other hand, you're talking about people who, when you put them together in the room and, and they, they start talking, it becomes hysterical. Even, even when they're talking about killing a guy, like in my book when I talk about how, how uh, one guy's saying, well, you know, I, I, I own a caddy, but I don't, I don't use my caddy to work with. The, the trunk in my Lincoln is so much better. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that, especially since I've had both. <laughs> oh, and 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 of course, and then the other guy says, "Well, you know, what about what about those uh, those Chryslers? They got nice trunks." And the guy said, "Yeah, nice trunks, but come on, it's a Chrysler. You want to be seen in a Chrysler?" You know, I mean, <laughs> that kind of conversation with these guys, or right after they, you know, right after, or or again, when when the two guys, Mike and Taz, in my story, go to collect money. From this from this guy in in uh, in the parking lot, and he's got a mallet, thinking he's going to beat Jerry up with. But when but when Taz and Mike show up, the, the guy beats the crap out of himself with the mallet because he's afraid of what these guys would have done. 
if if he didn't show you know that that he was deathly afraid of them or you know the the, the other guy who shoots who shoots a guy over dinner uh and the guy because the guy was complaining about the about the wine he was drinking and and so then the the the, the shooter you know literally takes a sip of the wine and he says you know and this wine don't suck you know and it, it's it's <laughs> the things that it, as 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 brutal as it is in one way, it's these guys are funny in another. So uh, you have to, you have to. But but in all honesty, even even in um, even in, I, I I never ever ever compare the boss to something as fantastic as The Godfather, especially Godfather One and Godfather Two. But but I certainly it's on the level of. A casino or Goodfellas, I'm, and and if you and if you think about it, if you really think about it, think about those movies on on the scenes where you know it, it's funny. They they they're funny when when they go to the mother's house because he's got to use the he's got to borrow the knife to, <laughs> to you know technically kill the guy in the trunk. But he tells the mother that that he uh, you know he's got blood on him because they hit a deer and the deer's hoof is stuck in the grill of the car, so he needs the knife. And, and meanwhile, they're eating, they're eating at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning with a, with a 90% dead guy in the car. Uh, <laughs> this is a, or, you know, that whole scene in the, in the, in the nightclub where, where uh, what, I'm funny? I'm funny how? I'm a clown? You know, you put these guys together in real life, and I've seen it. I've seen these guys. And oh, man. Yeah, no me too, you know, me too. I I've I've interviewed um several mobsters for or former mobsters for a column I used to write for the Examiner. Now I only write it once in a while. But uh man, one of them, he just kept me on the phone laughing until I thought I was going to split my sides. He was so darn funny with the stories he was telling me. And uh Eric, you're standing by there. Do you have any comments on what we've been talking about? Oh, we've lost Eric. Oh, I know Eric is there. Um, well, one thing I was going to uh, double back on is when you were talking about, you know, if if you decide that you have a book that's boiling up inside of you, um, one way a, a, a writer becomes a good writer is by reading other people's work. And like you said, you know, you can debate whether reading bad writing helps you or not. I think that's personally a 50-50 proposition. You gotta, you have to see what works. You can see what doesn't work, but you really need to see what does work and, and emulate that. And, you know, good, good writers are good readers, and they're also good listeners. I think if there's one thing this radio show teaches us is that, uh, Writing involves listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good comment. And by the way, Eric is not only our producer, he's also the president of Writers of Southern Nevada, so he has a bit of experience in the background as well. Um, I think we're going to have to wrap things up. Um, John, why don't you tell people where they can learn more about you? <laughs> well, learn more about me. You can simply go to johndemore.com. The thing is, folks, my name is J-O-N. There's no H. So it's J-O-N 
D-A-M-O-R-E.com. And there's my website there. If you want to contact me, just go to the contact page, and you just hit that little link, and it sends an email right to me. Uh, My book is called The Boss Always Sits in the Back. If you're interested in buying a copy, which are practically uh, the first editions are all sold out, there's only a few hardcovers left. If you go on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, you'll see that hardcover, uh, hardcover used versions are selling for over 100 to $300 a piece, but you can get them from me for $22 plus $5.50 shipping simply by writing to J-O-N, John, at theboss-always-sits-in-the-back.com. Let me know that you heard about it on this show, and I'll be happy to personalize it for you if you'd like. That's great. And and is it also available in um, Kindle and other digital formats? Kindle, Kindle, uh, Nook, iPad, and Kobo Reader. Just simply go to your provider, whichever uh, format you desire. Uh, It's available for $3.99. So uh, thank you for that. It's also available on audible.com. If you feel you want to listen to this voice for about 11 and a half hours, the entire (laughs) piece that's in the backstory is available for you. Yeah, that's great. You know, in in this digital age, I'm finding, I don't know if you are, but with my books, I find that my Kindles editions and the um, other digital editions are basically neck and neck with the paperback sales. So more and more people are starting to uh, download the digital copies of things, and I think we as writers need to remember to tell people that. Um, I personally always keep three or four books on my little pad so that if I'm out and I have time to kill or whatever, I can just take out the uh, Samsung and read a book. There you go. Yeah, well, I'll, I don't want to take up too much time, but like I said, when I knew I was going to be putting the boss out about a year ago, first thing I did was, uh, you know, I'm very new to the e-world, you know, the electronic world at that time. So I sent out an email to approximately uh, uh, 450 people from uh, 15 years old to about 77 years old and said, I'm thinking of putting a book out. Uh, Do you read, uh, your primary way to read a book is, and I said, print, uh, e-book, and obviously Kindle and and all the other ones, or audio book. And oddly enough, it turned out that audio book came in at 8%. And of those people, and I love demographics, by the way, of those people, uh, it was made up of, people who travel uh, a lot on airplanes for business, uh, people who sit on the 405 in Los Angeles on the way to anywhere, and, um, and it was also people over 65 who now have a hard time reading print and would rather just listen to an audio book. Uh, Interesting. And, then, and Yeah, and then um, it was literally on the nose uh two thirds was uh two thirds was uh print book. You know, you got the people who say I own a I own a Kindle 
but I prefer turning the pages myself, so I'd rather see print. So two, literally 66% came in at that, so which leaves uh, 30% left. Uh, and um, uh, I'm, uh, let me see, 66 and and uh, the other, sorry, the other was uh, 8%. So it, it's uh, about 25% or so uh, was with e-books at the time. Now, over that time, I bet in the last three years, I bet you if, if I uh, sent out that same questionnaire, the printed books would be noticeably less. You know, I agree with you because I've watched the evolution in my books. You know, I've got 12 books in publication right now. So going back to um, 2006, I've seen the change in the demographics in, in which things are being purchased and by whom. And um, anyway, uh, we've had a great time, and I love chatting with you, John. We'll have to have you back again. And um, I think we're going to say good night to everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, everybody. Eric, uh, Morgan, and Denny, who had to disappear a few minutes ago, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. And anytime you want me back on the show, all you got to do is say so. You're in our... Uh, in, in, well, oh, goodness. <laughs> I got all... <laughs> see? I got so excited there. That I just No, we'd love to have you back, John. You'll be on our list. And thank it's not a bad much. list. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Good night. John, are you still there?